This is the Serious Sita Podcast, episode 15, powered by IslamicLearningMaterials.com. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Serious Sita podcast. I know it's been a while and I apologize for that. What I'm going to do is try to complete this podcast, this episode, all the way through to the end of the Sita timeline, which is the death of Prophet Muhammad. And my hope is that we can complete that without any more interruptions, inshallah. So, just so you know, it's coming up on today's episode of Serious Theater. We will be discussing the events leading up to the Battle of Badr. We will not talk about the Battle of Badr in and of itself, just the events that lead up to it and the time between the end of the last episode, which was the establishment of Medina and the contract of the residents of Medina made by the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, and the events that lead right up to the beginning of the Battle of Badr. Inshallah, we're going to find out everything that happened in between then. Now, if you are new to the Serious Theater podcast, I suggest you go back to the beginning and listen to everything in order from episode one. But if you've been with us for a while, or if you've been listening to it so far from episode one, then just know that inshallah, a new episode will be out every Wednesday. We'll have a new episode out every Wednesday up to the death of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And yes, of course, it, we, I do plan on ending the podcast at that point in time. Anyway, if you would like the show notes for this episode, the show notes will pretty much be a bullet list of my um, of my notes, basically. The notes that I've taken that I read off, I'm going to put them up here so you can follow like a timeline, basically just outlining all of the um, everything that we're going to talk about in this episode. If you would like to see those things for yourself, along with links to the different surahs that I mentioned and to a few other resources as well, you can find that at the primary website for Serio Sita, which is Sita, S-E-E-R-A-H dot U-S, Sita dot U-S slash 15 for episode number 15. So if you also, one more thing, just before we wrap up and uh, get into the show, if you would like to listen to more Islamic podcasts or more podcasts by Muslims, I suggest you go ahead and check out the website podcastmuslim.com. There you will there you will find all of the podcasts from Islamic learning materials, including Romantic Muslim, the uh, Islamic History podcast, as well as the weekly khutbah podcast. You'll find all of those there. And inshallah, you'll find something you, you can be interested in. So with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the introduction and get into the show. Here we go with Serious Sita, episode number 15. Are you ready to take your life to the next level? If you're struggling to gain that edge, to find balance and meaning in your life, the Islamic Learning Materials Club is your answer. Inside the club, You'll find full video courses on how to read Arabic, study the Qur'an, and basic Islamic principles. But, in addition to those things, you'll also discover how to find balance in your life, increase your productivity, and become the leader you were always meant to be. How much better would your life be if you could spend more quality time with your family? How much better would your life be if you could finally attend that class at the masjid you never seem to have time for, how much better would your life be? 
if you could read the Quran with understanding. This is what we offer at the Islamic Learning Materials Club. Join now and your first month is only $1. Visit islamiclearningmaterials.club to sign up. Having said that, also the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, made the, the wealthy people, made them feel responsible for their brothers because in the hadi ummatukum ummatan wahida wa ana rabbukum fa'budun this ummah of yours is one ummah and i am your lord so worship me so the prophet peace and blessing be upon him made a bond of brotherhood between these muslims the blacks and the whites and the arabs and the non-arabs and the persians and the men and the women and the rich and the poor they were one ummah and they were a magnificent brotherhood Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Rabbi Shrahni Sadri wa Yasiri Amri. We are continuing our class on the Seerah of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, which is the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. We are on the 15th class, 15th episode, however you may, you may want to call it. And we are now discussing the run up or the build up of, of events that led to the Battle of Badr. So right now we are going to talk mostly about the events that took place in the second year of the Hijrah. That is the second year after the uh, Muslims of Mecca, along with the Prophet ﷺ, migrated from Mecca to Medina. The Quraysh were not able to strike at the Muslims uh, who were in Medina, and they were pretty much upset about what had about the Muslims leaving Mecca. So they instead used political pressure. Those Muslims who could not make it out of Mecca were for whatever reason, some Muslims couldn't make it because they were too poor or because their families held them back and wouldn't let them leave or for other personal reasons they couldn't make the Hijrah with the Prophet. Those Muslims, their lives were in constant danger. Many of them suffered even even more persecution after the Prophet Wasallam and most of the Muslims had left Mecca. They suffered it. They had uh, even greater levels of persecution and torture to deal with. The Quraysh also used political pressure against the Ansars. The Ansars, by the way, was the name of the Muslims who were natives of Medina, who had accepted Prophet Muhammad and invited them into their town. When these Ansars, when they would make Umrah, which is a minor pilgrimage, and this was a practice that had been in place since the time of Prophet Ibrahim, when they made the minor pilgrimage to Mecca, the Quraysh would intimidate them and make them feel scared and threatened. And the Quraysh wouldn't go so far as to hurt them while they were on Umrah because that was considered a very bad thing. It would have really damaged the Quraysh uh, reputation. So they stayed away from that. But the Ansars were highly keen, very much aware of the fact that their lives were in constant danger. And the only thing keeping them alive was the fact that the Quraysh didn't want to violate the protocols of protecting the, uh, the, um, the people who made the pilgrims who made, who made the Umrah to Mecca. The Quraysh also collaborated with the hypocrites of Medina. These are people like Abdullah ibn, Ub- ibn U- Ubay ibn Salul, who was the uh, chief among the hypocrites, as he's often called. He was a man who thought he was about to become the king of Medina uh, in order to, is Yathrib at the time. He was very close to becoming the king of Medina, and he was just about to be crowned and uh, that's when the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu came in. He kind of lost his position and he couldn't speak out against the Prophet. He couldn't do anything against him outwardly or or in an um, explicit way. So instead, he hid his disbelief and his anger and his resentment and instead began to 
engage in a sort of how people often call passive aggressive, uh, a campaign of passive aggression against the Prophet He was basically a hypocrite. He also collaborated with the Quraysh in trying to find a way to overthrow and bring down the Prophet. The Quraysh were openly making threats against the Muslims of Medina in addition to the Ansars who visited Mecca for their Umrah, the Quraysh made it known to all the Arabian tribes that they planned on invading Medina at some point in time and bringing the Muslims in check. So with this time, and there were even threats against the life of Prophet Muhammad So with all this in time, the Prophet began to, well, the Muslims actually began to establish a, a sort of security system around the Prophet wasallam. They would have bodyguards posted outside his home at night watching out for potential assassins. And this stayed in place for a while until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed a verse letting the Prophet know that this was not necessary and that the Prophet would be protected by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ya ayyuha rasul balligh ma unzila ilayka min rabbik wa illam taf'al fama ballaghta risalatah wallahu ya'asimuka minan nas O Messenger, announce that which has been revealed to you from your Lord. And if you do not, then you have not conveyed his message. And Allah will protect you from the people. Indeed, Allah does not guide the disbelieving people. Now at this time, the Quraysh were still the big boys on the block. The Muslims were a small ragtag, very tiny force, tiny, very tiny population compared to the Quraysh. In fact, Medina was a small island of faith, a small island of belief in a sea of polytheism and paganism and disbelief. They were completely surrounded by hostile enemies and hostile forces. So the uh, most of the Bedouins in this area, most of the different tribes, the, everyone was aware of the migration. Everyone was aware of what the Muslims were doing. Everyone was aware of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But many of them had not chosen sides directly. But those that did choose sides, the vast majority of them went over to the Quraysh. In fact, there were I can't think of any Bedouin tribe that joined the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam unless they became Muslim. So, uh, so there were no pagan tribes who allied with the Muslims. So at the, in the early stages. The only ones that the Muslims could rely on were themselves and, of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whereas most of the Bedouins either sided with the Quraysh or completely remained independent. But there are many who actually waged war against the Muslims, and we'll talk about this eventually, inshallah, later on in the future episodes. There are many uh, Bedouin tribes who actually fought against the Muslims directly, who were not Quraysh. So the Muslims were surrounded by enemies on all sides. And with this situation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verses that gave Muslims the permission to fight. It was during this stage that Islam became a more assertive mission where the Muslims were now striking back and actually trying to show their strength and their ability to hit at the Quraysh. Whereas for the first 13 or so years in Mecca, Islam had been a very passive faith where the Muslims inviting people to Islam, but pretty much being a passive or sometimes even a pacifist belief system. But now that the permission to fight has come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Muslims were much more assertive. 
Now, they weren't necessarily going out conquering people, conquering people, but they did begin a camp, a raiding campaign against the Quraysh, mostly attacking the Quraysh caravans. And this was a form of economic warfare meant to strike at the financial base of the Quraysh and make it more difficult for the Quraysh to attack the Muslims. And this is the actual verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives Muslims the permission to fight. And they are those who, if we give them authority in the land, establish prayer and give zakat and enjoin what is right and forbid what is wrong. And to Allah belongs the outcome of all matters. Now, many of these early raids were very simple. It, there were very, very few deaths. And in fact, the Muslims usually is kind of it was um the the forces were very small. Sometimes like thirty between thirty to two hundred people. They weren't gigantic uh, battalions of soldiers or anything like that. It was they were very small, small uh, raiding forces. And so the Muslims would attack the caravans usually in kind of stick them up, give me your stuff kind of thing. And they would steal the merchandise, but they wouldn't generally kill the people who were there. And in fact, there were very, very few people killed during these early raids before the Battle of Badr. There was one occasion of one death, and we'll get to that in a second. But for the most part, there were very few deaths, and these weren't outright battles and attacks that led to high levels of bloodshed like would come later on. And in these raiding parties, often the Prophet ﷺ would travel along with him, but sometimes he did not. He would just receive news of a caravan coming through, uh, coming from the Quraysh, and he would sometimes he would send a force out to intercept it, and sometimes he would go ahead and accompany the force and himself, and they would go ahead and intercept it. But once again, there were very few deaths, and these weren't large, large-scale battles. And in fact, the, the uh, Muslims at this time were... I don't want to say disorganized, but they were very unsophisticated in their battle techniques. Now, over time, of course, they got much better. But in these very early days, they were very unsophisticated. When you read through the details of these battles, very often they got there too late. Now, this just is, that just may be a, a circumstance having to deal with the fact that information and people traveled much slower back then. But still, very often the Muslims go to intercept a caravan, they would get there long after the caravan had already passed and they would have to go back to Medina. So in this these early days, the Muslim army was very unsophisticated. They weren't well equipped. They weren't, some of them were good fighters, but they weren't a, a crack fighting team or anything like that. They weren't super soldiers or anything like that. They were very simple guys, simple men, basically who had been shepherds and merchants just a few years earlier. Now they were being asked to fight. So they weren't really professionals at this sort of thing. But over time, of course, they got better. And when the Prophet did travel with, the, with his men, with his soldiers to, uh, in these raiding parties, he would take the opportunity to make agreements and pacts and deals with the different Bedouin tribes along the way. Now, most of these tribes did not accept Islam. The vast majority of them just agreed to remain neutral. They agreed that while they weren't ready to accept the Prophet as their leader, meaning that they would become Muslim, they did agree at least not to help the Quraysh. And that was pretty much 
what the Muslims needed at this point in time to once again try and drive a wedge between the Quraysh and their much, much broader base of support. Now, in one of these raiding parties in the month of Rajab, in the second year of the Hijrah, the uh, Muslims heard of, or the Prophet heard of a very large caravan coming through. And he knew it was coming from Mecca. He wanted to intercept it as it would bring lots of wealth to the Muslims and strike at the Quraysh and hurt them a little bit. So he wanted to do that. But the thing was that Raja was considered one of the sacred months and fighting and killing during that time was was strongly looked down upon. It was highly condemnable, condemnable at that time. But still, this is an opportunity that just couldn't be passed up. And so the Prophet sent a small party of men out there to spy on the caravan and just see if they could verify the reports of how large it was. When the men got there, they saw that the, the reports were true and this was a humongous caravan. And they knew that if they went all the way back to Medina to tell the Prophet about it and then waited for his orders to come all the way back, and by then you know, everything would be gone. The caravan would have, been, would have moved on to safety. So... These uh, Muslims, they they decided, took it upon themselves to attack the caravan without getting permission from the Prophet So they did that, and unfortunately, in their actions, they killed one of the Quraysh who were accompanying the caravan. The biggest problem with this is that this, when the news got back to the Quraysh about what happened, they used this as a propaganda tool. They used this as an opportunity to speak down on the Muslims, to speak down on Prophet Muhammad. So I'm like, look, like saying, look at this guy. He's preaching all this stuff about holiness and righteousness, and yet he attacks people and kills people during the sacred months, which goes against all protocol and all customs and all, all good conduct. And so they used this opportunity to really uh, bring... a hurt the Muslim's reputation a little bit. When the Prophet heard about what had happened, how they had killed one of these men, he was upset about it because, once again, there wasn't too much killing in this time. But also, it was one of the sacred months, and he knew how the Quraysh would use would use the this event, this incident, to their advantage. So he simply, uh, what he did was uh, pay blood money to the family of that deceased person. Not too long after that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses of the Quran, of the Quran letting the Prophet know that even though it was not good to kill or to fight during the uh, sacred months, the persecution and the evil committed by the Quraysh was much, much worse and had been done on a much grander scale. And in fact, during the entire time that the Muslims had lived in Mecca, the Meccans, the uh, the Quraysh persecuted them all the time, no matter what month it was, whether it was a sacred month or not. The Muslims were always being persecuted in, in Mecca. يسألونك عن الشهر الحرام قتال فيه قل قتال فيه كبير وصد عن سبيل الله وكفر به والمسجد الحرام والمسجد الحرام وإخراج أهله منه أكبر عند الله وَالْفِتْنَةُ أَكْبَرُ مِنَ الْقَتْلِ وَلَا يَزَالُونَ يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ حَتَّى يَرُدُّوكُمْ عَنْ دِينِكُمْ إِنْ اسْتَطَاعُوا وَمَنْ يَرْتَدِدْ مِنْكُمْ عَنْ دِينِهِ فَيَمُتْ وَهُوَ كَافِرٌ فَأُولَئِكَ فَأُولَئِكَ حَبِطَتْ أَعْمَالُهُمْ فِي الدُّنْيَا وَالْآخِرَةِ وَأُولَٰئِكَ أَصْحَابُ النَّارِ هُمْ فِيهَا خَالِدُونَ
They ask you about the sacred month, about fighting therein. Say, fighting therein is a great sin, but averting people from the way of Allah and disbelief in Him and preventing access to Al-Masjid Al-Haram and the expulsion of His people therefrom are greater evils in the sight of Allah. And fitna is greater than killing. And they will continue to fight you until they turn you back from your religion, if they are able. And whoever of you reverts from his religion to disbelief and dies while he is a disbeliever, for those, their deeds have become worthless in this world and the hereafter. And those are the companions of the fire. They will abide therein eternally. In fact, the uh, the treatment uh, of what happened against the Muslims was much on a much grander scale. Had done, they had done much worse to the Muslims. So they really, the Quraysh didn't have anything to stand on. But the fact of the matter is, they used this opportunity to hit at the Muslims' reputation. This is reminiscent of some of the things that happened in our time, how when a, a Muslim is uh, accused or sometimes actually does commit some sort of, uh, I would say, evil deed, sometimes it is a bad deed that a Muslim does that leads to the deaths of many people or just of some sort of terrorist event, Muslims are often maligned with this and they're often accused of doing this out of religious extremism, blaming it on their, on their religion, on Islam in and of itself. But on the flip side, when you have a, a non-Muslim, particularly a Christian, particularly a Christian of European descent, when these things happen, everyone is quick to find excuses. Oh, he was crazy. He's mentally unstable. All sorts of things. You can go all the way back you can go way, way back uh, throughout the early 2000s, uh, whether it was the um, the guy who opened fire in the movie theater in Colorado, killed so many people, the guy who opened fire in Arizona, and when he shot the um, the U.S. politician in the head. <clears throat> then uh, more recently, there's the incident of those three young Muslims who were killed in North Carolina. In all of these incidents, everyone claimed, no one claimed these things were done for religious reasons. For the one in Colorado, they said the guy was crazy. The one in Arizona, they said he was crazy. The one in, in uh, North Carolina, they said that he was an atheist. He hated everybody. He was just a bad guy, nothing to do with religion. Well, I guess if he, if he was an atheist, I guess it does have nothing to do with religion, huh? Anyway, and even more recently, you have the, um, the, the crash of the plane uh, that was being flown by a German who seems to have crashed it deliberately once again. He's called to be, he, he was said to be uh, mentally unstable. Is that, but if a, a Muslim does it, it's not that he's unstable. He has to be doing it for, uh, out of religious extremism. So this is just the same double standards that the Quraysh are doing against the Muslims in their time also. But we'll leave that alone for now. The Prophet paid the blood money. The uh, Quraysh was still upset about it. But uh, then think about these events, even though that incident was uh, perhaps not the way the Prophet wanted to turn out. These attacks and these raids let the Quraysh know that the Muslims weren't just going to sit there and let the Quraysh walk all over them. They weren't going to roll over and just let the Quraysh trample them anyhow they please. The Muslims showed the Quraysh that they could strike back and that they could hit them and that they could hit them where it hurt also, right in the pocketbooks, and that they could cause enough of a problem to the Quraysh where the Quraysh should at least think twice before they do anything against the Muslims. Like with any bully, if you show him you can fight back, while he may still pummel you, he may still beat you down, but at least he'll think twice before if he knows that there's a chance of him getting hurt. He'll 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 at least take a, a little bit of time to think about it if he knows that there's a chance he may lose an eye in the process. 
Well, it was after these events that uh, more verses of warfare or of fighting, maybe warfare isn't a bad, isn't a good word, but it doesn't matter. More, more verses of fighting were beginning to be revealed, and uh, we can go through some of them now. وَقَاتِلُوا فِي سَبِيلِ اللَّهِ الَّذِينَ يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ وَلَا تَعْتَدُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ الْمُعْتَدِينَ وَاقْتُلُوهُمْ حَيْثُ ثَقِفْتُمُوهُمْ وَأَخْرِجُوهُمْ مِنْ حَيْثُ أَخْرَجُوكُمْ وَالْفِتْنَةُ أَشَدُّ مِنَ الْقَتْلِ وَلَا تُقَاتِلُوهُمْ عِنْدَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ حَتَّى يُقَاتِلُوكُمْ فِيهِ فَإِنْ قَاتَلُوكُمْ فَاقْتُلُوهُمْ كَذَلِكَ جَزَاءُ الْكَافِرِينَ فَإِنْ انْتَهَوْا فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَّحِيمٌ وَقَاتِلُوهُمْ حَتَّى لَا تَكُونَ فِتْنَةٌ وَيَكُونَ الدِّينُ لِلَّهِ فَإِنْ انْتَهَوْا فَلَا عُدْوَانَ إِلَّا عَلَى الظَّالِمِينَ Fight in the way of Allah, those who fight you, but do not transgress. Indeed, Allah does not like the transgressors. And kill them wherever you overtake them and expel them from wherever they have expelled you. And fitna is worse than killing. And do not fight them at al-Masjid al-Haram until they fight you there. But if they fight you, then kill them. Such is the recompense of the disbelievers. And if they cease, then indeed Allah is forgiving and merciful. Fight them until there is no more fitna, and until worship is acknowledged to be for Allah. But if they cease, then there is to be no aggression except against the oppressors. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also revealed verses regarding the hypocrites and the cowards who did not want to take part in the battle, those who, who did not want to take part in the raiding parties and who stayed behind. Allah spoke about them also in this verse here. فَإِذَا أُنْزِلَتْ سُورَةٌ مُحْكَمَةٌ وَذُكِرَ فِيهَا الْقِتَالُ رَأَيْتَ الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ رَأَيْتَ الَّذِينَ فِي قُلُوبِهِمْ مَرَضٌ يَنْظُرُونَ إِلَيْكَ نَظَرَ الْمَغْشِيِّ عَلَيْهِ مِنَ الْمَوْتِ فَأَوْلَى لَهُمْ طَاعَةٌ وَقَوْلٌ مَعْرُوفٌ those who believe say, Why has a surah not been sent down? But when a precise surah is revealed and fighting is mentioned therein, you see those in whose hearts is hypocrisy looking at you with a look of one overcome by death. And more appropriate for them would have been obedience and good words. And when the matter of fighting was determined, if they had been true to Allah, it would have been better for them. And it was also in this time that the Qibla was changed. The direction of prayer was changed as well. Up until this time, the Muslims had prayed, in Medina at least, they had prayed facing towards Jerusalem, which the, the Jews of Medina had been really pleased with, as it showed us sort of common bond and maybe a... I don't know, maybe perhaps a sign of uh, superiority of 
the ancestral home of Judaism over the uh, the Arabs' home in Mecca or Medina. Who knows? But whatever reason, the Jews were pleased with it. But for a long time, during the first 16, 18 months that the Prophet was in Medina, he really wanted the Qibla to be made towards Mecca. But, of course, he just can't go and change it himself. He had to wait for the command from Allah Taala to change that Qibla. Finally, in the second year of the Hijrah, the the verses were were revealed, giving Muslims the command to pray towards the Qibla, which is the current Qibla, which is the Kaaba in Mecca. We have certainly seen the turning of your face, O Muhammad, toward the heavens, and we will surely turn you to a qibla with which you will be pleased. So turn your face towards al-Masjid al-Haram, and wherever you believers are, turn your faces toward it in prayer. Indeed, those who have been given the scripture well know that it is the truth from their Lord, and Allah is not unaware of what they do. And there's a hadith where the Prophet was, um, one of the companions mentions how the Prophet was making Salat al-Asr, and the companion was making it with him, and he, the Prophet was making it towards the Kaaba. After that, uh, the man, the companion, then went out uh, walking through the streets of Medina. He passed by the masjid, and he saw many people in there praying, but praying towards the the uh, the old Qibla, which was towards Jerusalem. So he called in there and let them know that the Qibla had been changed. And when he did this, the people were in Ruku. They were in the bowing position with their hands on their knees. And when they heard this, they immediately turned in the opposite direction and faced towards Mecca instead. And this location is still marked in Saudi Arabia. I saw it myself. It's called Masjid al-Qiblatayn, which is the Masjid of Two Qiblas in, uh, in Medina. I saw this myself when I made Hajj in 2014. And you can see there's like a, um, like a, a plaque or a sign in a way showing how the direction that the Muslims used to face, and then of course you have the regular Qibla that's in most masajid. And it's an interesting thing to see, the uh, massive Qibla chain. But anyway, point is the when the Sahabas, when they're in Ruku, in the bowing position, and they heard that the Qibla had changed, they immediately, whilst in Ruku, just turned around, made a complete 180, and faced towards Mecca. And that has been the Qibla for Muslims ever since. Now, during these, this period of raids and, and minor skirmishes, one of the big caravans had managed to escape the Muslim raiding, raiding party. We told you how the Muslims were a little disorganized at this point in time. They weren't real professionals at this just yet. And one of the, car- one of the, one of the really big caravans that was just loaded down with a whole bunch of goods, it was going from uh, Mecca to Syria. It happened to slip past the Muslims uh, just before they got there. And this was being led by Abu Sufyan, who was one of the leaders of the Quraysh. He was not the big boss. Uh, that was still Abu Jal. But he was one of the leaders of the Quraysh. And 
he he knew his his job pretty well. He knew he was a he had been a merchant for a long time. He knew the dangers of uh, traveling with a huge caravan through the desert. So he knew how to avoid them. And like I said, the Muslims weren't really really professional at this just yet. So he managed to slip past them. But now he was on his way back, and the Muslims knew that they had missed out on this caravan by just a a few inches, a few a few uh, days really. They had just missed out on this caravan. So when they heard that it was coming back and it was once again loaded down with goods coming from Syria back to Mecca, they knew that this was an opportunity to get that caravan again, with it, to get back what they had missed the first time around. So as we had mentioned before, the Prophet Sallallahu had always, during these, these little raiding parties, he, had only, he would only send out a, a small force. He wouldn't send out these huge battalions. So he sent out a small force of men of 300 to 317 soldiers to intercept the caravan before it returned to Mecca. And the Prophet also joined in this one and went along with them. Abu Sufyan, however, on his return, as he was, as he was returning to Syria, once again, he knew this area pretty well. He was very professional at this. He knew what he was doing. He had he had advanced scouts going out, so reports were coming back to him early about the Muslims' uh, raiding party gathering. And so he sent a messenger back to Mecca, asking them to send him reinforcements in case the Muslims well not in case the Muslims were planning on attack on attack him. So he sent a messenger back to Quraysh to send a raiding party out to support him when the Muslims attack. But Abu Sufyan knew what he was doing also, and he managed to divert the caravan around and away from the Muslim raiding party. And this would lead to the Battle of Badr, which we will discuss in the next episode, inshallah. So for now, we're going to stop here, and we'll pick up in uh, episode number 16 of Syria Sita. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadun la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilaik. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Do you like listening to Islamic podcasts? Visit podcastmuslim.com. Do you want to create your own Islamic podcast? Visit podcastmuslim.com. Are you a Muslim podcaster? Visit podcastmuslim.com. Visit podcastmuslim.com for everything you need to know about podcasting for Muslims. Oh, oh, oh.